This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 55 of the Best Seats podcast. The only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented people in and around the Southern California hospitality industry from right here in Orange County and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder of The Best Seats. As always, thank you so much to my friend, Allie Coyle, who provides music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. She just launched her first EP, so go check it out. It is an awesome, awesome, awesome listening experience. I can't recommend it highly enough. And as a reminder, if you do enjoy the show, please be sure to leave a rating and or a review wherever you are listening to it. It helps other folks discover it. You can go to thebestseats.com for more content just like this. And to all of you who support over on patreon.com forward slash thebestseats and get early ad-free listening, as well as all those other perks and access to different types of material, thank you so much for your continued support. And thank you to the sponsors for this show. Let's dive into it. Episode 55 is a very, very exciting one. Um, Anybody who knows me knows that while I love all aspects of the hospitality industry, spirits and cocktails are really, really at the forefront for me. One of my favorite spirit brands out there right now is Amass Botanics in Los Angeles, which is why it is so humbling and exciting to have gotten the call for the opportunity to sit down with their co-founder and master distiller, Morgan McLaughlin. Now, full, full disclosure, um, Amass has been really good to me. They, you know, I was kind of on their their Zoom happy hours during the shutdown. Um, they have sent me like hand sanitizer, um, you know, these awesome masks that they did at one point, as well as a few bottles of their spirits to try. Um, so as much as I love Amass and I love their products, obviously, just full disclosure, you can take my recommendation with a grain of salt if you want. I would rather just give you full transparency, but it is a brand that I really like. I think their products are freaking awesome. Um, delicious spirits, very, very cool things. They've got a very, very awesome style and a sense of branding. They wear their emotions on their sleeve and they're people that I respect a lot. But out of the uh, kind of respect for full disclosure and transparency with this brand, uh, it should be noted that I am friendly with them. And uh, so, yeah, you could just take that with a grain of salt if you wish, but it's not going to take away from any aspect of this episode because this episode is awesome because we're sitting down with a talented as hell woman to learn about all these different spirits, what they're doing, her story, and some of the really, really cool projects that they've got working on that you will hear about first on this podcast. So without further ado, let's jump into episode 55 of the Best Seats podcast featuring the incredibly talented Morgan McLaughlin of Amass Botanics. Enjoy. Morgan, I am beyond excited to sit down today at the beautiful, still under development, beautiful Amass headquarters down here in the Arts District of Los Angeles. Um, I, I say every single episode how excited I am to have a guest on, and I'm always humbled by the time taken out of a day to, to kind of be on this pokey little podcast. But anybody who knows me knows that spirits and cocktail culture, but spirits especially, are a huge passion of mine. So this is deeply, deeply exciting for me, and there's a lot of different things that I want to touch on and talk about. Before we do that, would you mind taking a couple minutes just to introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background? 
Sure. Um, my name is Morgan McLaughlin, and I am the co-founder, master distiller, and I guess chief product officer at Amass Botanics. Um, I've been a distilling since probably about tw uh, 12 years now um, and founded one of the first craft distilleries here in Southern California. Um, I joined Amass full-time. Uh, they actually started as a client of mine uh, back in 2018, where they hired me to uh, develop their gin. Um, I've developed a number of gins that are on the market um, and just really enjoyed working with them. Next thing you know, I'm leading the team here. So it's been it's been a real, really, really fun. I've been at Adamass for two years, and we've gone from having two SKUs to I don't know how many. Uh, we launched with our gin in 2018. Um, introduced our botanic vodka in 2019 and in 2020 which was a very tumultuous year for the whole planet um i had a baby which is a really fun product development job but uh also um pivoted and um launched a whole range of personal care products under the ms botanics brand and also developed a number of other uh botanic beverages um also in low abv and no abv so there, before we talk about some of the other SKUs and other products um, that are currently released, depending on when people are listening to this, they you know, have just released or they've been on the market for a while, I want to talk about all of the 2020 stuff. Um, because you know, it, it's one thing to sit down with somebody who works with a liquor brand, but being able to sit down with a master distiller, I'm curious, and I've asked other guests that I've had on the show in your profession before, all of a sudden you go from making beautifully expressed spirits in a bottle that make people happy and you have to essentially turn into a sanitizer company. You know, one of my favorite expressions that I've always kind of lived by is that alcohol takes the polish off furniture and people. <laughs> in the case of many sanitizers, that was pretty damn true. But yeah. a mass all of a sudden hits the market and you came out with sanitizers. The truth be told, one night I wore one as a cologne. They smell so good. I mean, what was that development cycle like? And what was it like for you to go from doing what you did to all of a sudden you're essentially working, like you said, in kind of like a product lifestyle company? Um, well, it was funny because we, I guess if we backed up a little bit, a mass, the concept of a mass, which means to gather together, to bring people together. Although I like to say it also, we're also amassing botanicals. Um, we, we were really refining and focusing in on uh, this concept of really being a botanics-focused um, beverage por portfolio at the time, um, and as a, like shifting from like a traditional spirits portfolio with a gin, a vodka, rum, a whiskey, etc. Um, so just because that's really my background, that's really my passion, and we're noticing um, our consumer really is into botanicals. Um, our gin itself has 29 botanicals in it, um, some very adventuresome ones. And um, that's also my background and my passion. Um, so we were already starting to imagineer what a botanics brand would be. Probably at the end of 2019, early 2020, uh, we actually launched a couple of uh, beautiful fragrance candles. And we we're just kind of playing around with this idea. Um, at the same time, you know, my interest in botanics comes from a number of things. Like I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so I just grew up very close to nature. Um, I was also very sick in my twenties. So I, I, I had Lyme disease and, um, plant-based medicine was actually a huge part of my recovery and healing. And 
Um, so I've used plant-based medicine and, and studied it as a layperson for a long time. Um, and so we're just kind of starting to kind of think about how, how else we could express and celebrate botanics. And then the pandemic happened. And it was actually probably, it was sort of interesting because obviously a lot of craft distilleries and, and beauty brands, um, you know, jumped in and started making hand sanitizer because there was an enormous deficit of it. And, um, you know, which was really, really admirable. And we all did that. Um, you know, I think we donated something like 40,000 units of hand sanitizer to various like mm-hmm. government, like NGOs, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I wanted to make a hand sanitizer for me. <laughs> and um, our hand sanitizer ended up being immensely popular, I think, because um, just because of this botanic angle on it, which is really um, rather than, you know, celebrating and exploring botanics through flavor, it's celebrating and exploring it through fragrance. Um, so we launched with our four thieves hand sanitizer and, um, you know, and then expanded, expanded our product line from there. Um, and it was really, I'm, st- I, I still haven't really taken a breath cause I had a, I had like my baby was during born during this whole thing and I just haven't stopped really. But, um, it was an intensely creative period. It was scary. Um, but we just kind of went for it and, the really cool thing with working with botanicals um, for a fragrance application is like for me at least the lab process is very similar and the creative process is very similar and the way that you structure um, fragrance is is to me actually very similar to how you work with botanicals and ingredients in beverage. Um, so it was actually kind of easy in a way. I, I don't want to turn this into a, you know, one of those kind of education. Obviously, if, if people are fascinated by distilling, they can go and kind of learn about that basic yeah. process. But I am curious about what the difference is and how do you shift operations to all of a sudden turn into a company where you are mass producing hand sanitizer at that scale? What was the turnaround like for you? Because I want to, I want to if I remember 2020 correctly, because a mass was generous and sent me a bunch of samples and things like that. How quickly were you able to to use the the lexicon number one word of 2020 pivot and yeah. start to switch that production. And how do you produce well, it? So, so um, I, it's funny. I've been asked this question a number of times and I remember the date cause I was eight months pregnant, seven and a half months pregnant, getting on a plane to go up to San Francisco on March 1st. Oh my goodness. And there wasn't any hand sanitizer anywhere. And people were just like kind of starting to get a little weird about this, like maybe COVID thing. And that, And I I just couldn't find hand sanitizer anywhere. And I was like, well, I'm just going to make it. Um, And just anecdotally, from all my years working in a a distillery, and, you know, I did have high-proof spirits running across my hands all the time. It was impossible to have a nice manicure. Uh, It takes your nail polish off. Um, I knew that, you know, I didn't get sick, really, for that whole time, which Mm -hmm. is very interesting. But um, I... Um, it's like, well, I'm just going to make some and I'll make some for my friends and I'll make it for our office and, and I'm going to do this little botanic twist on it. And, um, you know, you know, that pet shop boys song, um, oh God, I can't remember how, you know, anyways, Mark is the brains. I'm the brawn. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, I'm just going to make this stuff. And he's like, well, let's, let's sell it. Let's put it out there. And so it went from idea March 1st when I was getting on this plane to March 
15th, I'd formulated it and we had it in the market like by mid-March, which is really crazy. That's wild. And then, you know, we obviously started off small scale um, and went from, you know, needing a footprint of basically like a garage to uh, producing at a scale where we're putting out 10,000 units a week at least. Um, And it was, um, my partner was able to engineer um, our whole factory. He's just very handy. It was just, you know, uh, the right resources at the right time. But like we had to like, it was like a military effort basically. Yeah. And, you know, we could have all easily just sort of said, you know, we're just going to chill out during COVID and like go to the beach or whatever. But, uh, I don't know for gluttons for punishment. Anyways, this thing happened and we went from not having this product to having like a full scale factory in a couple of months, which was really bananas. By the time you conceptualized also, you said the 15th. I mean, that's a day away from the actual shutdown. Mm -hmm. Basically, St. Patty's Day was it, especially in California where Mm -hmm. we jumped on it early. What was it like to have that process where you were essentially in the most rigid part of the nation? as far as lockdowns went and kind of as far as the shutdowns go. I mean, did it almost kind of feel like, you know, guerrilla operations trying yeah, to get together and make these it, things? And it absolutely did. Like we, we, at the beginning, we borrowed a friend's, like our friend um, has a, a, a business that he shut down. He had a warehouse and no, none of his warehouse workers were coming in. We're like, well, can we use your space? Cause no one's in there. Yes. Okay. That was good for about a month. And then we, Signed a lease on a place. And um, so, so, but it was crazy because, you know, even driving to work, the, there were no cars on the street. And, yeah. Um, and then the other interesting thing at that time, and we started hand sanitizer production, I think, a lot, way before a lot of companies did. Um, the other interesting thing, too, was the supply chain was just a mess. Like there was no alcohol to be found for a couple of months mm-hmm. to make hand sanitizer out of. And that's where, um, you know, I, I don't know if you recall, like the government was saying, like, you know, putting out a list of like toxic hand sanitizers. Well, I mean, these are, uh, you know, some of the stuff was like had methanol in it. People were getting their hands on bad alcohol and making hand sanitizer out of it. Yeah. Yeah. There were some intense ingredients out there. Mm hmm. I, I want to. I don't want this to turn into an entire walkthrough of your portfolio, but I'm so fascinated <laughs> by it. I do want to talk about your gin, the one that launched. You said yeah. it was 2018 yeah. when it hit. I I don't remember how I first discovered it. I it I know it had something to do with the bottle being striking, and I was curious that it was a gin out of Los Angeles. A friend of mine, in Orange County, got it early, sold me a bottle from his back bar directly, and it's beautiful. And and again, people who are listening could take that with a grain of salt, based on kind of my relationship with the team at Amass. But I love your gin. How did it come to be? And you mentioned that you're from up in British Columbia area, yeah. up in Canada. Yeah. Anybody who's been up there, there's an instant connection with nature that even if you've never had it before, you immediately get. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vancouver Island, that whole area is, it, it moves you. It's so pretty and so kind of infectious. How did your background growing up there translate into what that gin became? Because for 20, you said it was 28 botanicals? 29. 29. Yeah. It's it's gentle. It doesn't burn. It, there's grace to it. It's a very elegant spirit. What was the development process like for that from kind of idea to birth into the bottle? Um, well, it was funny because, um, you know, I just started chatting about it with Mark um, 
And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've made a number of terroir-driven gins before, and some mm-hmm. of them are California terroir-driven gins. So I was like, oh, I'm going to make another one. But uh, <laughs> so it's kind of funny. So it's like, I don't want to use the same botanicals. Yeah, how do you keep it different? Um, and so, um, you know, at the same time, we're looking at gins, and we didn't want, uh, I think the thing that I love about uh, a lot of terroir-driven gins is how, you know, hyper local they are but sometimes the problem you run into with that is um they're so um they can get they can they can be so unique that they're not versatile Mm -hmm. um so you know i just started thinking okay like i want a terroir driven gin that's like has a lot going on has a lot of botanicals happening at subtle levels um and has some really you know great aromatics some loud bass notes and a complexity to it but it wasn't so weird that you couldn't put it in negroni or it wouldn't work in a last word and um so the i wanted something that was like very botanically rich but at the same time um you just wasn't like weird for lack of a better word like you can't you can't really put hendrix in a negroni that would be weird Mm -hmm. so um it was a long process. The way I started that gin, um, I really, I, we wanted it to be Los Angeles specific. And so I uh, started, you know, we do use some traditional gin botanicals in the gin, but we also use botanicals that we pulled from um, the the region that are either indigenous or just kind of grow, grow here or known for growing here. Obviously, citrus is not indigenous to Southern California, but... People all over the world think of Southern California. They think of citrus. Um, and then also, um, you know, one of the things I love about Los Angeles is it's incredible multicultural fabric and the cuisine that goes with that. Yeah. And I wanted to celebrate that and kind of talk about that too because, the, you know, when you say Los Angeles gin, I, I think it does still really create some cognitive dissonance. Like we've launched a mass in the UK and they're fascinated by it. Like they're really into it, but they're like, LA gin, like something doesn't make sense. And so um, it just doesn't seem like a gin city. And then the terroir, they're like, what, what grows around there? Like how, like what's going on with this? Um, Yeah. Why does it, yeah. Is it an avocado gin and that's it. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so yeah. So also pulling um, botanicals from, um, you know, the, the culinary traditions of um, our very multicultural city. LA is the fourth most multicultural city in the world. And, um, I just love the idea that like food and beverage, I just throughout time often has been the way that people become introduced to other cultures. And, um, that really fascinates me. And I think that's really important. And I think food and beverage brings people together. So there's a lot of like ideology in there too, but you know, I, I, we don't have time to go through all the botanicals and you guys would be bored, but you know, um, you know, uh, Jamaica and cacao are from, you know, Latin American cuisine, um, you know, borrowing a lot from Indian and, um, you know, like Vietnamese cuisine as well. So, you know, in addition to like Cascara Sagrada and, you, you know, uh, what else do we have in there that's indigenous? There's like a lot of them actually. Well, Bay, California Bay actually comes from my backyard to this day. We harvest it really? out of my backyard. Yeah. Is there any fear that when a mask gets too, too big, all of a sudden you're like, well, 
Going to need a bigger backyard. I know. Well, the, <laughs> it's actually incredible how many leaves this, this tree produces, but um, we use 100 bay, bay leaves in every batch. Wow. Yeah. Man, that is a lot. <laughs> it, it's a universally, I, I've never been anybody that dislikes it. Um, I have a lot of friends in the craft bar industry. Obviously, they go through a ton of different products. They have a lot of exposure to a lot of different things. I've never heard a bad word about it. Um, I know a lot of people that are big fans of it. The, the botanic vodka that you came out with, too. I'm somebody that laments and, and makes fun of the, the Tito soda drinking crowd to the point where I'm amazed Tito's hasn't sent a cease and desist. <laughs> but again, the vodka is great too. And it's, it's one of those things that I don't, you know, I, I get off my high horse when it's in a cocktail and I'm like, I think it's delicious. There's not a lot of female master distillers out there. It's becoming more and more. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to you? And what is the experience like to not just be a female master distiller in this industry? but to create something, and we'll talk about the other products later on, but just hit after hit after hit of really, really well-received and beautifully expressed spirits. Uh, those are two big questions <laughs> that are kind of floated. <laughs> but, I mean, being a female master distiller, I, I think, you know, I remember, I, I remember going to distilling conventions when I was more of a baby distiller, and, you know, there'd be like a thousand people there, and there'd be like five women, and there'd be like, one other female distiller and like four marketing women. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm so excited that more and more women are getting into it. Um, as obviously, as you know, there's actually um, a lot of really um, famous master blenders in whiskey. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I think the women in distilling that I know, we all kind of, I don't want to say per we tend to be more behind the scenes kind of people. Like I, there actually are, um, there's quite a few female master distillers in the UK. You just don't really hear about them that much. Um, and the interesting thing about, and my previous profession was um, very male dominated as well. I was a camera operator in, in TV and film. Yeah. It was 5% female um, in distilling. It's probably less than 1%, but the, I think the benefit of being female is that I don't really feel, I think it's freed me in a way from like trying to fit in or like join a boys club. I just kind of like do what I do and do what I love. And like, I'm committed to making excellent product, whatever I do. And I have to love something and I have to have a reason behind every um, technical and aesthetic decision behind what I do with every product. Um, so that's kind of it. Like that answers both of those questions, but I don't, you know, I, I really, I don't know in terms of like the artistic process or the technical process. I just, um, you know, like the de developing a mass, it took six months and I mm. tested probably 130 different botanicals individually distilling them to see how volatile they were, how they, how they performed at what their, um, you know, density was it was really a fun project but maybe i'm a perfectionist i don't know <laughs> well keep it up if you are um as far as well it's time for a little commercial yeah the last year provided so many challenges for restaurant owners now that they're finally getting a chance to open their doors again to the public, it can only be an exciting thing. However, some of those challenges still remain, like hiring new staff after having to let go of them 
for almost an entire year. That's where Hire Lilo comes in. Custom built from the ground up by hospitality professionals, Hire Lilo is your destination for restaurant hiring. Applicants can create resumes on the site, set up meetings, use the virtual messaging system to communicate with potential hirees, and more. Restaurants also have a multitude of options to choose from, including selecting mandatory shifts for specific positions and more. The website is easy to use and is a perfect build-out for the hospitality industry. None of the other fancy stuff are trying to compete with every other industry on the planet for new hires. As I said, it is hospitality-specific, making it your destination for hiring. Using the promo code STAYSTRONG, all one word, you can create a free job posting today and start to fill those hiring voids. Hire Lilo provides on-site help. They'll sit down and make sure that your restaurant is set up and properly ready to go and that you can utilize all the features Hire Lilo offers. To learn more or to create an account and get job posting now, go to HireLilo.com. That's H-I-R-E-L-I-L-O.com. Once again, that's HireLilo.com. If you listen to the best seats at all or read the content, then you know the motto, live well and often. But what does it mean? In layman's terms, it's trying to give you the best products, places, experiences, and more, so you can put a big smile on your face every single day. Amass Botanics is what I use on my back bar constantly if I need a cocktail or a quick pick-me-up. Any of their other botanical products, like candles, hand sanitizer, and more, also helps to set the mood. Now, I'm a big fan of everything that Amass does. I have been since day one when they launched their trademark gin, and everything they've done since then has been nothing short of excellent. Now you can get your hands on their products at a discounted rate by going to amass.com and using the discount code, the best seats 15, that's C-E-A-T-S, at checkout. Now it's limited one per customer, so make sure you load up. But trust me, you can't go wrong with anything they're doing. I stand by Amass 100%. They're one of my go-to brands for spirits needs or anything around the house. So again, go to amass.com, that's A-M-A-S-S, and use the code the best seats 15 at checkout. Trust me, you will not be disappointed. I don't know about you, but 2020 had me relooking at how I live and the space that I live in. Spending so much time at home really had me reevaluating how certain things worked and didn't in my living space. One of the main things, as an avid home cook and an obvious supporter of restaurants, was gardening. Anybody who enjoys food at all will be able to tell you that something you've grown yourself will taste infinitely better than anything you can buy at a store. That's where Ashley Irene of Heirloom Potager comes in. Heirloom Potager designs, installs, and maintains seasonal culinary gardens for chefs and foodies in Orange County. They provide organic gardening methods and bespoke build-outs used to preserve the heirloom varietals that they'll provide for seeds. An approachable and exciting endeavor, no matter if you're a seasoned restaurateur or a stay-at-home chef, Owner Ashley Irene's experience, expertise, and enthusiasm is only matched by her professionalism. For more information on how you can set up a consultation to get your own culinary garden space set up, go to heirloompotager.com. That's heirloom, H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M, potager, P-O-T-A-G-E-R.com today. Once again, that's heirloompotager.com. Um, as far as testing kind of distillates and things like that, I want to touch on riverine. Mm-hmm. Now, riverine, for those of us any that don't know, is your for you know your first non-alc spirit, non-alcoholic. I don't know if the industry has come to terms with the universal descriptor. That's right. Yeah, NA spirits, you know, mocktail spirits, things like that, whatever you want to call it. 
there's a big push in the craft bar industry to, you know, I, again, my, I joke about Tito's, but I am a firm believer paradoxically that you should be able to order whatever you want. And that includes non-alcoholic drinks. Um, several other podcasters, interviewees, mem- you know, members of the media have talked about this, especially the past probably two years, the emergence of the non-alcoholic spirit. Yeah. You know, Seed Lip was kind of the first to blow the doors off the industry. They got bought up right away. Um, other people have come out with similar attempts, but there's always been kind of kickback. There's been a little bit of, mm, well, it's not really the same. The mouthfeel's not really there. You know, and I think the biggest misunderstanding that I want to clear up during this podcast from the public is, well, why does it cost the same? Right. Which, and I've heard, <laughs> you, I've heard you speak on Riverine, and obviously this is going to come down to kind of production and things like that because they are actually harder to make. But mm-hmm. can you kind of describe, A, because I, I'm sure that I didn't do it justice, what Riverine truly is, how it came to be, and what the difference is producing a, we'll just call it non-alc for the sake of argument, a non-alc spirit versus something with alcohol? Sure. Um, so Riverine, um, I, I guess, I, I mean, I'm maybe I'm selfish, but I always produce things that I want to consume. I guess I am. Like I, just in general with product development, I think it's really, really important to pay attention to your consumer. Um, but I think I am my, my consumer too. So with, in the case of Riverine, you know, I was kind of looking at some of the non-alcoholic spirits on the market. And it was interesting because um, started um, ideation on this product when I was pregnant, so I couldn't drink. Um, I was in the UK where there's a, a lot more non-alcoholic products on the market and going to, you know, going to bars and having these mind-blowing non-alcoholic cocktails Um you know, it's just more in the culture there. I think, you know, arguably there's more of a need for non-alcoholic spirits in the UK too. But um, uh, just seeing what was on the market um, and sort of, I just wanted to stay focused and keep the MS approach um, with with a non-alcoholic spirit. And in general, we just want to have an inclusive product portfolio. Mm -hmm. So um, that's very important to us. So having a non-alcoholic product was a a non-alcoholic botanical spirit was a natural move for us. Um, At that, I just kind of thought, again, the terroir from the Pacific Northwest where I grew up would work really well in a non-alcoholic spirit. Um, So... You know, you touched on people complaining that it doesn't, it's not the same, you know, non-alcoholic gins are not the same as gin or they don't have the right mouthfeel or burn. Um, And there are some non-alcoholic gins on the market that they're just trying to be like a gin with it minus the alcohol. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of like, to me, it's sort of like uh, not very good gin minus the alcohol or not very interesting. Like, and, and so there's different like different approaches to this non-alcoholic thing. And I'm really excited creatively just in the industry, what's going to happen. Like, I feel like this market is big and it's just going to take off. Like 30% of adult Americans don't drink alcohol. That's huge. And they've been drinking cranberry and soda or like ginger ale at their family dinners. Yeah. So like this is... A Coca-Cola was about the best you could do at a bar for years. For sure. And like... They deserve to have elegant, like sensory celebratory beverages as well. So I wanted to take a more, I guess, like culinary approach to a botanical non-alcoholic spirit. So again, in this case, did a terroir focus and we focused on the Pacific Northwest. Um, You know, the, the first thing people think of the Pacific Northwest is, you know, all the coniferous trees 
uh, which of course, you know, the main ingredient in gin is juniper. And um, I just knew that all those botanicals would work very well in the context of a gin or something like a gin. Um, now, the funny thing with developing riverine is, first of all, it's actually much more difficult to develop a non-alcoholic drink than an alcoholic drink. Alcohol is a solvent. Um, so when you macerate botanicals or push alcohol vapor through the botanicals, um, it pulls out the essential oils and flavors and aromas from the botanicals very nicely. Water is different. Um, it's much different. What you kind of end up with is kind of a tea. Um, botanicals have different um, boiling points. And so it's actually much more complex and, and challenging and also more expensive, funny enough, even though there's no alcohol in there, to produce a non-alcoholic spirit because um, the extract flavor extraction process is so much more arduous. Um, Hence the price for everybody listening. That's why they should actually technically probably be more expensive than the spirits for that reason. This is absolutely true. And it was funny because our sales manager in Singapore reached out to me recently and he, he shared with me an article by an Australian bartender, you know, it was like with his pitchforks and torches saying, this is distilled water. This should be like $2. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> Clearly he hasn't done his research. I mean, the reception to it has been great mm-hmm. and it's only a product and a section of the market that I think is going to continue to grow. You're recently seeing bars that are entirely dedicated Mm -hmm. to non-alcoholic. I mean, this podcast is based out of Orange County. Right before the pandemic, we had one that was doing a pop-up called Temperance Bar. Obviously, I'm sure there's a handful all over Los Angeles, New York. Um, There's countless of them. This isn't, now it could be fair to look at some brands and think that they did this because the market was hot. People are trying to cash in. Same as kind of the seltzer craze. We'll talk about amasses in in just a couple of minutes. You guys wanted to do this because a you were pregnant and you saw a gap in the market and you wanted to fill it and it's the right thing to do to be able to offer people good products is this something that you're going to continue to pursue to develop on i mean is it you know a sequel to riverine down the road type of thing or is it just continuing to kind of enhance it and keep going um yeah i'm working on a sequel to riverine right now actually there you go yeah. nice <laughs> so that um you know i i'm hoping to launch that later this year um but yeah, I, I mean, I, it, you know, it's just so interesting. I mean, statistically, younger people are drinking less. I don't know what the hell's wrong with them. I know. There's so much good stuff out there. I mean, at least try it. <laughs> I mean, do it responsibly, for God's sakes. But, but. No, but I, it's, I, it's also very cool because, I mean, people, it's really about consciousness. And, and you know, this, you know, health craze, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shift. It's a cosmological shift. This is not some little thing that some weird hippies get into. Like this is the hegemonic like movement of culture is towards like health and wellness and self self-awareness. I believe I know I live in a bubble in Los Angeles, but you know, if my in-laws from rural Pennsylvania are like talking about omega threes, like something's probably happening. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, people at different points of their life, might choose not to drink alcohol. And the other thing about alcohol and the traditions around drinking alcohol, um, when you think it's not just traditions around distilling method and also spirit categories, it's such a traditional industry. But also drinking culture is so traditional too. And I think um, the occasions for drinking and who's drinking and when are changing now. Yeah. 
I would agree with that. Yeah. I think you still have your, you mentioned life in the UK, obviously anybody who's traveled to the UK or, you know, the, the, those kind of surrounding areas knows kind of what those traditions are like. We have <laughs> our own here in the States, but they are shifting and, and they are changing. Um, one of the ones that I think has changed the past couple of years, and, and I'm excited to pick your brain on this is the evolution of seltzer. The, yeah. the all of that. I mean, we all know who the first big dogs were to the market, but now that's what everybody is bringing to the pool. I'm, I mean, we're recording this end of June, 4th of July is right around the corner. Yep. 80% of what you see at your local pool or at the beach is probably going to be a seltzer in a can. It just will be. Yep. Now, Amass recently released yours to rave reviews. Um, your team was kind enough. They sent me a case. I tried all three flavors and then immediately took the next day off and kept trying all three flavors. <laughs> Um, they're great, but it's the same type of situation where they're priced higher yeah. than the rest of the market. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, rightfully so, but obviously that's kind of to each their own. Um, they don't taste like anything else. And some of the seltzers, and again, we talked about the mouthfeel with the non-alcoholic spirits, seltzers, you kind of sometimes get that you feel like you're in kind of inhaling the carbonic nature of it. And, and it's kind of forced citrus juices and things like that. What was the development of it like? How did how did a mass approach it? I mean, did you just basically look around the market and be like, "Well, shit, everybody else is doing it. Maybe we should try it." I mean, but how did you come to develop them? That was, well, there was definitely a bit of that. You know, um, I think that we knew that we wanted to again create an inclusive portfolio mm-hmm. and to create lower ABV products. So seltzer made sense. I mean, the other thing about our brand is like because we are really transparent about our ingredients and our production methods and stuff like that. You know, the hard seltzer market, it's kind of frat bros, but also kind of hits the the like health and wellness psychographic as well because they tend to be around 100 calories. You know what you're getting. It's like lower mm-hmm. alcohol. Um, but, you know, we wanted to make a hard seltzer that was a little bit more of a, a flavored journey, a little bit more intriguing conceptually and and um, yeah, I guess just from the flavor profile, just have something a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced in depth at the same time as being crushable. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the word you have to use is crushable. <laughs> I, I've had people on, uh, I've had friends come on the show and they've also had seltzers or they've been working on RTD cocktails, um, things like that. Can you kind of just give the crash course on how you develop from you know, just picking the flavors and actually creating the product until it hits that can. Uh, okay. Um, it, yeah, it, it kind of depends every time, but like, I mean, first of all, um, you know, my job is to also taste as my, I, I just try to, whatever product category I'm working in, even if I'm going, say going back to gin, I'll, if I'm working in gin, I'll just all, whenever I go out, all I'm drinking is gin. I'm trying mm. all the different gins. I'm just like making sure my palate's kind of calibrated. So the funny thing with the hard seltzer was we started thinking about it like right after my baby was born. And to be completely honest, I'd never tried a hard seltzer before we started thinking about it. Like I just never had one. They weren't appealing to me. Like there's probably somebody that says that every single day in the, in the <laughs> States. I don't think you're alone. Right. So, <laughs> but so, you know, started tasting a lot of hard seltzers, you know, figuring out what my faves were, et cetera. And then, um, you know, from there, um, just conceptually coming up with some flavor, just purely conceptual, some flavor profiles, um, some botanicals that I thought would 
pair nicely. In this case, we did do a fruit base, which is traditional in, in seltzer. Um, just sketching things out, just a whole bunch of spitballing ideas, sketching things out. I think I, I sketched out maybe like 10 different potential flavors and then like winnowed it down, went to, went to our team here. Which of these is most appealing to you? Because I am also an outlier. Like I like really herbaceous things and like I know what I like is not necessarily what, you know, somebody at Whole Foods feels like mm-hmm. drinking. Um, and then from there, um, yeah, we just started experimenting. You d- and you really just have to, like, the thing with lab processes, for anyone who's, like, getting into, like, beverage development or any any type of, like, you, like, the worst thing I did in the first couple of years of my distilling was not take good notes. Um, and so, you know, if you're familiar with an ingredient or you're familiar with an ingredient from a specific supplier, you're kind of going to know, okay, I can't really use more than, like, this much of this or I have to use this much of this to get to dial it up, but really it's with building like a recipe, you just have to experiment, taste it, redo it, go back, um, put, take out that ingredient, put this one in. And it's just, it's a bit of trial and error, to be honest. How did you finally land on the way that you introduce kind of the seltzer to the drink, the the, kind of the carbonation of it? Because there's so many that you kind of crack the top and you get that just kind of hit on the nose of, it, it's almost like something shouldn't be in there, and now it's escaping the can. Right. Well, I think that's because the vast majority of hard seltzers actually use um, like natural flavors, but it's really artificial flavors. I think mm-hmm. that's what that is. Like, I opened a can of of cacti on on my desk a few weeks ago. We're like, "What's go- what is all the what's all the hype here?" <laughs> and someone could smell it from ten feet away. Oh. And it smelled like, you know, like, I think like a strawberry shortcake doll. So there's, you know, there's something, I think, with those synthetic ingredients where, you know, they're just very, very, very volatile. But then when you drink them, the flavor is just gone. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the appealing thing for, uh, like, about hard seltzers for a lot of people. It's like the vodka soda. It's basically a vodka soda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The... I know there's one other product that you're working on that, and again, the, the kind of theme of this show has been working with other products and then chasing down kind of that, and this is something I relate to, that almost kind of obsessive race to kind of run after and try to find and create something so great. You guys are currently working on a product that, correct me if I'm wrong, is THC-based mm-hmm. spirit. Mm-hmm. Is that the best way to describe it? It's a THC-infused non-alcoholic spirit okay so it functions like a gin in terms of use case you can make a cocktail out of it but it is infused with um with cannabis with cannabinoids there are other thc drinks on the market um for people that partake in that this is california so you know get after it um (laughs) how why and and what is this bit now? Again, it, we're recording this end of June. The product is currently under development. I know it's not planned to release for at least until the end of the year, based on what I've heard. Maybe probably later than that, based on I'm sure, assuming some logistics. I think it's going to be sooner, actually. Then never mind. Sooner works better, <laughs> depending on when you're listening to this. Do you want to try it out. out when it comes out? I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, mm-hmm. 
what in, what is that process like to bake? I mean, obviously a little bit similar to the riverine. Mm-hmm. You kind of have that knowledge base mm-hmm. of the non-alk base of it, mm-hmm. but now you're tackling something that isn't even legal in you know more than half the country, give or take, at the time of this recording. Mm-hmm. What's this kind of journey been like? Oh well, it's been it's been super cool. Um, we like first of all, I'm I've never been much of a cannabis user myself. Mm-hmm. Um, although I love how the flower smells and it can smell all sorts of different ways, but I just really love the aroma of cannabis, but I've never been, um, like a, a cannabis user, um, which is funny because of where I grew up. Um, but you know, cannabis is also probably one of the most famous and celebrated botanicals in the world. Um, and I, you know, I do absolutely believe in its, um, medicinal, uh, properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been very interesting taking this product project on because it's been a huge learning curve. Um, even learning about a, the cannabis industry, B cannabis culture, um, where the industry's at, um, all of the science behind cannabis, um, and how, you know, these cannabinoids, like we basically co co evolved with cannabinoids, like human beings have these receptors in their system, which is very interesting. Um, you know, it's a tiny, I don't want to say it's a tiny market, but it's a nascent market. Um, cannabis beverage is a nascent market. And, um, you know, one of the challenges of it is there really isn't like, there isn't like a, a Southern or a Young's market of cannabis beverages. Like people are still kind of, you know, you walk into a dispensary and there's a, again, a little cognitive dissonance with cannabis beverage, but, um, and most of the ca- cannabis beverages on the market, they're more of like, you know, they, they're flavored like Mountain Dew. And- yeah, I think there's, it, and, I, and I'll blank on the name, um, not out of disrespect for the company, I just can't remember it. I think there's one that's kind of supposed to be like a wine, but most of the others are kind of that same, like almost kind of energy drinkish. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's, again, like partly we saw maybe a space in the market, and I think it is a really small space because, like, super premium cannabis is just a small space in the market. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but we, you know, I, in general, like, I, the way that we're building out our product for, portfolio, we're, I'm really thinking about it in terms of, like, what is, what is the bar cart going to look like in 10 years? Yeah. What are, like, people, like, and cannabis beverage... I think will will could easily be part of that um, as as um, cannabis becomes destigmatized. Um, not to like rat them out, but like my dad and my stepmom, like all of a sudden we're like microdosing, like starting a year ago. And so there's this whole. I th- I think as cannabis becomes it's way to go, mom and dad. <laughs> I know, way to I'm, go. I'm so Good for you. It's it's been such a it's been so fun, um, but but I just think you know as it becomes destigmatized and also as cannabis becomes available in these like controlled, um, you know, dose situations, where you know I would try some some cannabis like a joint and not be able to talk for two days. So like, I was like, I'm not going yeah, there. There were always that variable of you're like, well, am I going to be fine or am I sleeping here for the next 14 hours? Exactly. What's going to happen? Yes. I mean, you, you mentioned during the other, again, the other products that we touched on in the podcast so far, you're constantly tasting everything. I would imagine with something that has THC infused into it, mm-hmm. that tasting process is a little different <laughs> because yeah. God forbid you get that dosage wrong. All of a sudden you're like, who door dashed 40 pizzas? <laughs> 
I mean, what's the development process kind of it, 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 ongoing? You said it's soon, but I would imagine it's probably mm-hmm. not kind of gone gold yet to bottle. What's the, what was the process like to be able to kind of find that right, you know, quote unquote dosage? Because you're still dealing with a bottle, something that God forbid somebody overpours. Now you have a completely different animal. I mean, what kind of dosing would you be talking about? Say like two ounces for a drink, your kind of standard pour. How are um, you balancing it? We're doing um, 3.5 milligrams of THC, um, 3.5 milligrams of CBD, 3.5 milligrams of Delta-8, actually, um, per shot, one and a half ounces. So it really functions like um, like a shot of alcohol. And the dose was also kind of based on, it's all subjective, but like, how most people felt mm-hmm. after this dose. It was the same as most people felt after a drink of alcohol. So you could conceivably have three in the course of an evening while you're hanging out with your friends and not get ruined. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about cannabis is people really metabolize it differently, like way different than alcohol, actually. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we didn't want to put a higher dose in there and get somebody in trouble. Um, we wanted it to be something that people could consume multiple of. The other interesting thing about cannabis beverage compared to cannabis edibles is the uptake is much faster. So in the similar to um, having a drink, with edibles, the onset time is usually around 45 minutes. Um, drinking a cannabis beverage, on average, the onset time is around 15 minutes. Okay, so, again, so way faster. Way, yeah. way faster. Yeah, so it's the same sort of thing. Like if you're at a party or something, you're not going to you'll kind of get the same sort of like euphoric feeling at mm-hmm. the same rate as having a drink. I mean, you mentioned it's a nascent market. We kind of, you mentioned the home bar. I mean, this doesn't sound at least, and again, this is my ignorance of the laws at the moment. Like this is something you'll find on a public back bar. I mean, is, is there hope that this could be or no, because it would be, I mean, the issue is you, you again, you've been an alcohol company for so long, those rules, those hoops that you've had to jump through to get mm-hmm. something on the market is tried and true. This is a very, very niche product, yeah. kind of globally speaking at the moment. It absolutely I mean, what's, is. What's it been like navigating those waters of, you know, not just legality, but, okay, we've made it. Where can we get it to? Sure. Um, well, we actually partnered with um, some friends who are, um, they have a cannabis venture fund. So they've actually partnered on this and they are the experts. So... I am learning so much from them, but it, it, the industry is, it's actually, I would say probably more regulated than alcohol. Um, we have to document, um, the, the, um, cannabis as it moves from the supplier to the co-packer to the warehouse to the, it's same as a three tier system. Um, it's, it is a niche product. I haven't looked at the legislation lately, but there are starting to be cannabis like consumption bars Mm -hmm. out there but i don't think they can have alcohol so everything just gets tricky yeah it's (laughs) to me it seems very silly but um you know inch by inch like you know more and more states are legalizing Mm -hmm. it and it is it's becoming normalized as it should be Mm -hmm. um and you know it's not going to happen in the next couple years but um, currently, I mean, how many states is cannabis legal in now? It's I, top of my head. I couldn't tell you, but I want to say it's, and this is going to be wrong. And if I get this wrong, you can go to the slash you're wrong and write in. <laughs> I want to say it's around 
15, something like yeah, that. And yeah. again, I'll, and if that's super wrong, I can correct it in the post show. So <laughs> keep listening and I'll either have an apology or an I told you so. Uh, there's one last thing that I want to ask you about um, Amass. Amass is a brand that's not afraid to wear its kind of values and belief system on its sleeve. Mm-hmm. Um, famously or, or semi-famously or infamously. And again, and, and this isn't a political show inherently, and I don't want to take it down a political route, but I do have a lot of respect for you guys in being bold. And you came out with limited quantity of it, but you guys came out with a vodka um, following, which is called spade to spade, the most recent political uh, movements called impeachment. That's right. Peach-based vodka that you're selling in limited quantities, still available online, um, depending on when people are listening to this. How quickly did that all come together? I mean, and, and what's it what's it like working for a brand that is not afraid to kind of show its its value system on its sleeve? Um, it was it was it was a little crazy. Um, it it was a bit of an impulsive move for one, um, but we just you know we actually put out this all started about a year. Well, the last time Trump you know, there was a move to impeach him. So whenever that was a year and a half ago, mm. um, we we made a, a mock-up of uh, of impeachment just as a joke and put it up on... on and it um, was like, hey, if you guys like this, we'll make it. I remember when that post went live. Yeah. So, so yeah. So actually, we just got enough people liking it. And um, so that was, you know, that was, I guess, uh, egalitarian in its own right. And so enough people were enthusiastic about it that we were like, okay, I guess we're running this. And I've never whipped up a product so quickly. Um, I was going to say, that was fast. That I mean, was not my favorite thing I've ever made. <laughs> my, it's the first time I've ever worked with, um, like, na- quote-unquote, natural flavors. Mm-hmm. But my my joke is that the, the peach flavor is as natural as Trump's tan. Um, and, um, and to be honest, it was galvanizing. We had all sorts of people you know, getting on Facebook and yelling at our social media people. And, you know, I, it's a tough day to be a social media manager. It really, really is. I know I, you know, bless their hearts, but, um, but it also just was, I mean, it was, it was, an, I will really say it was an experiment. Um, a, so just sort of as an operational exercise, like here's an idea for a product from taking it from an idea to getting it, out the door within three months go let's figure out how we can do this that was for me kind of cool and then you know in terms of like how the public engaged with it was also really interesting but i mean it was just kind of a silly novelty thing at the end of the day yeah yeah but from kind of the business standpoint it's an interesting little case study yeah so i'd be remiss if i didn't ask about that yeah um morgan i don't want to take up too much more of your time you're obviously very busy developing even more and more fantastic things. I do have one final question. The original gin, the baby in the black bottle that kind of launched all of this, is that going to stay in its current iteration? Are there any plans for any kind of future gins or evolutions of it? Um, I would love to do more gins. And I think that um, I probably not in the next year, but I think we probably will will move into doing some more limited edition things um, after we've built out our product portfolio from more of a tent pole position, but I gin is my favorite thing to make. So yeah. I, I think we will be doing more gins for well, sure. You make a great one. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
Um, if people want to find you on social media, follow a mass, I mean, the, the, the links will be in the show notes, but where can people go ahead and do that? Oh my God, I'm the worst. I'm so bad <laughs> at social media. Um, um, we are on Instagram at Amass Botanics. Um, I think it's amass.com on the internet. Uh, what's my handle? My handle's Ginwitch. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm actually terrible, terrible, terrible at social media. Well, so. it's okay. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about it. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for the, <laughs> the, the opportunity. To, to well, thank you so, so much for the time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm a huge fan of the brand and, and what you're doing up here. And I, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Oh, thank you so much, Crawford. It was great chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Morgan for taking the time to sit down on this pokey little show and share all of her knowledge, her experience, her story, the process behind the different products that they make up at a mass, everything. Such a cool sit down. Um, really cool people, as I said before. Thank you so much to everybody who supports the best seats over on Patreon and gets early access to the show, whether you support at the $1 a month or 15 or whatever it is. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you to everybody. As a reminder, you can check out thebestseats.com for more. Thank you to the sponsors for this show, Hire Lilo, Heirloom Potage, and Amass. Super excited about that. I hope you enjoyed. I will see you next time. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Cheryl McCarthy, George Pavlov, Serena Warino, Eric Lutz, Pizza Guy 92, Loco Lipo, Tim Falk. Thank you for your support.